after this, please. Boom. Uh, the, the first two weeks of this series, we talked about uh, beginning prayer out of the temptation story of Christ. The real quick version of that story is Jesus is baptized. Immediately after baptism, he's led to the wilderness where the Spirit walks him around the wilderness for how many days? Forty days. And in that time, he's tempted three times about, about bread. He's tempted about being the, a political provider all the kingdoms at his rule, and he's tempted about being the religious leader. I'll put you up at the top of the temple, and you can do your thing. All right? He's tempted three times. Three times he responds with out of Deuteronomy chapter 8 um, that I am just realizing we didn't read. Well, Brady, get ready. I'm going to call you up in just a minute, okay? I oh, boy. I'm all over the place today. I will, I'll call you up in just a minute, okay? And so after those, uh, he responds to each temptation with uh, passages out of Deuteronomy 8. We're about to hear Deuteronomy 8. You'll, you'll be familiar words. Jesus recites them back to the devil. And then the devil departs him until a further time. Well, how do we learn prayer in this? Well, we've framed it this way. We learn how to begin prayer the same way Jesus began his ministry, out of identity, out of baptism, the Lord speaks to Jesus, and a spirit descends upon him, and the Father says, this is my beloved son. Identity, belovedness. Where do we begin prayer? We begin prayer with that you are a son and daughter who's able to go directly to the Father. You don't have to beg God. You can just talk to God. That's where we begin. We talked uh, the next time about preparing to pray. 40 days is an era. It's a season. It's a long time. So be patient in your own prayer life. Be patient in your own walk with Jesus. Wherever you are, might be a season, just like Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. We often learn how to pray. We prepare for prayer. We prepare for our identity by being stripped of everything else. Right? It's an era. It's a season. And today... I want to talk to you about centering prayer from the first temptation, the temptation of bread. Now, I've set you up, Brady. Would you come and read to us from De Deuteronomy chapter 8? Remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the, in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and, te and test you in order to what you're in, in your heart, whether or, not to, whether or not you keep in his command, his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and, and feed, feeding with you with uh, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you to, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the, from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out of your feet, uh, your feet and feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Observe the, com the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him, revering and revering him. 
For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out of the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and have sat and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. This is the word of the Lord, indeed. And so, at the very beginning of this temptation experience for Christ, Luke records the story this way: He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, quoting Brady, quoting Deuteronomy 8. It is written, One does not live by bread alone. I have a question. Does it feel like to you at all, in any way, that we've lost our center in society. My dad loves the Andy Griffith Show. And uh, when I watch the Andy Griffith Show, I feel like it, anybody Andy Griffith fans? Like the reruns, okay. I feel like it captures mid-century America about as best as, about as best as, as can be. I wonder how that version of America would stack up with the version today. In some ways, when you rewatch Andy Griffith's show, what you see about Andy Griffith seems so, so distant from today. The town. What was the name of that town? Help me out. Ah, Mayberry. Oh, I see. I've written it down here in my notes. Okay, I did know. Okay. I was just testing you. Mayberry was built upon old-fashioned trust. Everybody seems to trust each other in Mayberry, but today, I don't know about you, today it feels different for me. It feels like trust um, has been drowned out by a society of insecurity. This week I overheard a group of old timers. It was a fun conversation. They were chatting about the changing times in America. Uh, They sat there at Hy-Vee around pancakes um, and... (laughs) They solved all the world's problems, and they discussed how others are ruining, I quote, ruining America. (laughs) Then they began. They began to remember the good old days when everything was more like Mayberry and less like America. They remembered when society had a collective center rooted in our consciousness. I'll give them one thing. If the days gone by were actually like we remember. If the days in the mid-century were just like they're pictured on our TV, then yeah, yeah, we're far from Mayberry, aren't we? If Mayberry is our center, then I have to agree America today is decentered. I've heard the argument before, maybe you've heard it too, that goes something like this. 
Oh, these days we've lost our backbone. We've lost our glory. I've heard the lament that kids, well, kids these days, they choose who to respect like their dates on Tinder. Oh, you're supposed to laugh at that. We've lost our trust. We've lost our trust in you. And we've lost our trust in our institutions. We've all witnessed the sudden decline of trust in traditional banks, as well as trust in institutions like the one that I represent that used to be commonplace. We've lost our trust in small town economy. Picket fences of Mayberry have been replaced with privacy fences of suburbia. Neighbors can't be trusted. Economies don't flourish. Small towns struggle and no one knows each other's name. Pollution is threatening life and safety. It's not guaranteed. Not in elementary schools, not in city buildings, not in churches, not in festivals. No, not anywhere. Goodness. Front porches aren't even built anymore. Am I sounding like an old man? Front porches aren't even built anymore. And no one knows right from wrong. I suppose we've lost our trust in many things. We've lost our trust that things will be the way we imagine that they should be. We might ask ourselves, where, where has Mayberry gone? When, when will Mayberry come back? When will we ever find our center again? Now, living in first century Palestine was not unlike living today. Living in first century Palestine, the time that Jesus lived, was certainly not Mayberry. Living in first century Palestine was like the old timers around Hy-Vee eating their pancakes, reflecting over the past. First century Palestine had their own imagined uh, past that they used to weigh out their present and their future. They remembered the promises of old. Oh, they remembered how the poor would receive good news. They would chat together over coffee, cross legs, watching Wimbledon tennis at Hy-Vee. That the brokenhearted would be comforted. The captives would be released and prisoners would be set free. See, in their imagined Jewish version of Mayberry, their imagined version of past glory, they were people destined for deliverance. But now, but now Mayberry, if you will, was just a distant dream and the current day was in ruins. In first century Palestine, the normal folk, folk like me and you, had their center ripped from them. Bad news piled upon the poor. The brokenhearted received no respite, no care, no compassion. Captives were abused. Prisons were overcrowded. The rich grew richer by the moment and no one stayed around to mourn anymore. The times they were a-changing. The hungry, they had no food. The government, well, it couldn't be trusted. The taxes, always went to the wealthy. The social programs absolutely busted. First century society was in tension, and it was in need of strong messianic leadership. Friends, it's in this backdrop that Jesus found himself in the desert at the end of a long and vulnerable journey. It's in this wilderness that he wrestled with the means of salvation for a desperate and needy people. 
just like the first time, that first time you're remembering in Genesis chapter 3, just like the first time the slithering serpent was ready to meet Jesus in the famished days of his hunger with a bargain to fix the unrest. I, I imagine that Jesus' stomach it growled <laughs> as he felt all that Israel had ever felt. His life paralleling the lives of God's chosen people, stretched, tried, and hungry, pining for the days of promise, looking for center. The devil made his approach in the vulnerability of Jesus. The temptation coming like a beacon over unsafe waters. Now listen, the temptation, I believe this offer was an appealing option. I like what Eugene Peterson says. He remarks that the devil is a spiritual being. His usual mode of temptation is not an obvious evil, but to an apparent good. Eugene Peterson's a smart guy. One more time. The devil's usual mode of temptation is not an obvious evil. That would be easy to say no, right? But it's to an apparent good. The temptation promised, the temptation promised is the imagination of yesterday's Mayberry. Oh, come on now. A hungry people who no longer had a hunger. Only if Jesus would do something about it. Turn these million stones into bread and provide a need for forgotten people. Become what the people desire. Be what the people imagine. All Jesus had to do was take matters into his own hands and make his powers the center. The devil's wilderness policy. On appearance, it was a good thing. You know, everybody gets bread. That's a good thing. Hungry people get fed. That's a good thing. But it would come at a devastating cost. It would cost Jesus the centralization of his identity. The temptation to become self-reliant. Could you picture what life would be like had Jesus not captured people's imagination for the right thing? tension of this passage, it hangs on what Brady read for us this morning. It hangs on Deuteronomy 8. And I wonder, would Jesus be like Eve and chase immediate satisfaction? Or would Jesus be centered upon the commands of God? What, what would be Jesus' true desires? According to the passage of Deuteronomy, Jesus quotes, God is the provider. God is the loyal promise keeper. Well, it's God who is the most faithful. God will provide when there is no other way. God will explicitly feed the hungry when the bread has ran out. God will clothe the naked. And God will, God will water the land and bring out the fruit. God will simply do what God said he would do. Jesus could get busy with doing what needs done right now. Or he could center all of his patience on the hope of God's promise. So here is the temptation. The temptation is to step away from faith. Step away from faith in the loyal love of God and step towards self-reliance. 
oh, it will come to you as a very good thing. In fact, it will be such a good thing that you'll be accused of not being a Christian when you don't act soon enough. That's how good this temptation will come to you with appearance. It will appear as if you are being unfaithful. The temptation is disguised because in reality what's happening here is that you would deny the hope of the future by decentering the promise from God's provision to your own self-sufficiency. On the appearance, it looks great. One man providing bread for every human being. That looks great. But that need dies when Jesus dies. It's not need, sorry. That provision dies when Jesus dies. But if Jesus is centered on something else, if Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise that will last for eternity, then the needy get fed long after Jesus dies. When self-reliance, here's what I'm trying to say this morning. When self-reliance replaces patient formation, God's faithful provision turns toward anxious urgency. God better deliver. God better deliver or else. Or else what? Or else we'll be tempted to rise up in self-sufficiency and do it ourselves. We might say to ourselves, I've been in this desert for too long. Have you looked around? Have you seen the state of society? How long will we take disrespect, ornery teenagers? How long will we ignore the hungry? How long will we talk to each other like this? Until the anxiety of our own hungry desires lead us to feed ourselves. And we might say, I can't wait any longer. I need justice. I need it now. So when it comes time to make decisions, we make decisions like the only way toward salvation is through our own haste, our own making, our own thinking, our own desires. It's like we either eat our own or we don't eat at all. And in this, we lose our memory. We forget that our desire for justice is given to us by a just God. That our hunger, that our hunger is given to us by a God who feeds the birds every single day. And our need to be seen is placed in our spirits by a God of relationship. Our base desires have a creator, and that creator will fulfill his promise to us. He will not let you down. You will not go hungry. The fulfillment comes by way of learning the long way toward obedience. Deuteronomy 8.2 reminds us to not forget, and I quote, the long way that the Lord your God has led you. Faithfulness to a life centered in Christ is cultivated in the way we order ourselves around the way of God's, sorry, around the way of obedience to God's promises. Compared to the tempting way of self-sufficiency, I want to warn you, this is the long way. The long way of the Lord is showing up to hang out with one another in presence. Denying your schedules. It will come at a cost, but it will be faithful. The long way of the Lord is a life of hope built in the remembering of God's promise 
gathering each week to remember with God's people requires a commitment that at some times it may become very uncomfortable to you. It will be the long way to stay committed, but it's the faithful way. The long way. It happens in a community that behaves in God's preferred way. Abiding by ethics together. Deciding how to serve and how to serve like Christ. Oh, it will cause you to have to submit your own ideas to the ideas of another. It will be a long way. But living in this type of giving and receiving is a more faithful way. The long way reveals itself in lives that think, that be, and that do, as if they believe with all of their heart that God will follow through. Don't you want to belong to a community like that? I believe we belong to a community like that. The long way of the Lord is in the vulnerability of being dependent upon the covenant of God's promises when a more tempting way presents itself. Well, I've got good news, friends, okay? Good news. We can live centered in the assurance of the Father being who he said he would be. The way of self-sufficient salvation is unsustainable. It's unrealistic. And friends, it's not at all true. God's promises will go on whether I get up and do something about it or not. God's promises will go on whether you get up and do something about it or not. It's going to be far more rewarding for you and I both if we surrender and confess that our way is not the way. I got more. We can't live in self-sufficiency forever because Jesus said it truth, truthfully. One can't live on bread alone. The type of self that we need, the type of center that we need, is one that finds its place in the foundation, the, the rock, the truth, in a trusted other. I'm thinking of this type of life as a centered prayer life, a life that lives in relationship, codependency, and with complete trust in the fulfillment of covenant promise. The center of our lives anchored in the love of another. Where in that love, in that shared relationship, we become free to receive and to give. This way of living centered in our relationship with God is the type, it's the very type of living that we see in Jesus who did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself and took the appearance of a servant and entered a circle of religious leaders huddled around a societal threat, a rebellious and sinful adulteress. The leaders demanded justice and tried Jesus against the law of Moses. See, their hope was to trap him, to accuse him, and to defraud his power. But instead, Jesus stood beside this vulnerable and broken picture of first century Palestinian life. A woman who needed help. 
And Jesus offered a rebuke, catch this, that gave him the only power to condemn the woman. Now listen to this. As the only sinless person to ever live, it is Jesus, right, that commanded a stone be cast by anyone who has never sinned. That eliminated all of the indignant, self-righteous leaders, leaving only who? Who was the only person in the circle who had never sinned? Jesus. Jesus was the one with the right to throw a stone. Oh, come on, Jesus. Show them who's boss. Show them who's right. Show them righteousness. You can, Jesus, you can in this moment. You can take your ground. We need a strong, messianic leader. Do what no one else would do. Say what no one else would say. Do it in a manner that no one else would do. Give us back Mayberry, Jesus, and stone this woman. But he didn't. Alone, Jesus stood beside this woman. Listen to how crazy this story is with the authority. He had the authority. He was the only one with legitimate authority to take matters into his own hands and deliver a powerful message about living in sin. Instead, Jesus responded from a different center, not a center of self-importance, which he had. He was the only self that could do that. But he operated from a different center, a center of his father's loyal love, where he had developed trust through the trying season of wilderness. <laughs> Jesus emptied himself of any right to condemn the lady. He emptied himself. He emptied himself so that God's promises could fully fill his life. So he set her free to live a life of obedience. As, it has, as had been modeled for her in that very moment, he forgave. He gave of his perfection so that she could taste the freedom of God's loyal and saving love. This is grace. This is the center. This is Jesus this is an example of living in the center of God's promise, rebuking self-sufficiency to be formed in the patient promises of God. And what are they? Well, God will deliver. Can you stand with me? Let's stand because we're going to sing right after this. I'm getting amped. God will deliver. God will save. The poor will not go unnoticed. They will not go unnoticed. Christ is rising up leaders right now in this community that will help lead the way for the poor to not go unnoticed. You have to believe in the promises of God that the poor around you will not go unnoticed. You don't have to be anxious about it. Just trust the poor will not go unnoticed because God will not stop being God. 
The hungry will not go unfed. The willow will not go lonely. The orphan will not go parentless. The blind, they're going to see again. The lame, they will walk again. The dead, oh, come on, who do we serve? They're going to rise again. As a community of believers, rooted in this testimony of Christ, we have assurance. Oh, we have assurance that God will do what God said he will do. So, here's my challenge to you this week. May we center our lives, not on all that we have to do to make this a good church again. <laughs> ah, relax. I'm relaxed. I'm relaxed. You be relaxed too, okay? Let's just relax. And let's center our lives on the promise that God will follow through according to his character and covenant. Friends, this is good news.